From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Thanks for inviting me into your home. Long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show, and uh, hello to all of you listening along the network to one of our affiliates across North America, those of you who take the show with you wherever you go with your mobile device, The Conspiracy Show app, and hello to all of you who uh, listen via the uh, the YouTube channel. Wherever and however you're listening, I thank you for your fine company. Sarah Whalen stays with us for hour two, a two-hour special on the assassination of Princess Diana. And uh, Sarah is a, a journalist and the author of Royal Vengeance. We were talking about the um, Princess Diana and uh, the Mercedes traveling through the Alma Tunnel. And uh, we were talking about the uh, the infamous white uh, Uno uh, vehicle, which slammed into the side of the car, forcing it into the 13th pillar at uh, in the Alma Tunnel. How many witnesses uh, saw this, and how many were interviewed uh, for the Scott Baker inquest? Uh, many were interviewed. Not all testimony was taken. Uh, the in of course when the the french judge did the first inquest there were maybe 30 witnesses and it gradually dwindled down to just a handful who were you know uh, some were considered unreliable but there was a lot of consistency in the statements you have to take three inquests and put them together which is pretty much what i did in the book so, you know, not all of them have really high reliability. And somebody might get fired from their job and be upset, and the cops say, oh, you know, he, he has a reputation for being a hothead. But so what? I mean, if he was there, and, and the witnesses range from really wealthy people to cab drivers to, you know, unemployed homeless people who were just hanging around the tunnel. But they saw what they saw, the testimony about the bright blinding flash is very consistent so you know i don't i don't have a doubt on on that score at all and for those who think well maybe it was the paparazzi and they simply ran off there is a law in france uh if you witness a a crime or a quick if you witness an accident you must stay and provide it's true yes and uh, so, you know, that was initially the arrest of the paparazzi. I think that was just a red herring, you know, because, first of all, the people came after the accident. I think what infuriated bystanders was that the, some of the paparazzi were indeed taking pictures. But all that film was confiscated. There, there is hardly a photo available of Princess Diana there may be two in the car, and all the film was confiscated. And what's really interesting is that James Andenson, the the guy who owned a white Fiat Uno whose paint matches the paint in the accident, you know, he claimed not to be in Paris on that night, but it seems, in fact, it's very likely he was because he left from Orly Airport the next morning. He made sure to, I think he went to Corsica for four days, immediately after the accident, just hours after. 
How did they how did they put the uh, the finger on Anderson? How did they identify that he was the driver? It, it it was identified by a detective hired by by uh by Muhammad Al Fayed. And and that was really the key to just about everything. One of the one way it was I mean, he was known. He was a known personality, but he had also he gave he gave statements to the police saying he hadn't been anywhere near the Paris Tunnel. But then he told close friends of his that he had been in the Paris Tunnel that night. He also told people he had photographs. He further told several people that he was going to collaborate on a book, <laughs> and all of this came out. And, you know, he was busy denying these things to the Paris police, but people were saying no. You know, I had a conversation with him, and he said that, you know, he had these photographs, he wants to write a book, he wants to make some money, and he knows what happened. And next thing you know, James Andenson disappears, and then he's found dead, burned to death, in, not in the white Fiat Uno, but in another vehicle that he owned, in a very distant field in France, in the middle of nowhere, that's actually owned by the military. Doors were locked from the inside, and the firemen who came, you know, there was a burning car, so the fire department was called, and a fireman came out, and he said he saw two bullet holes in Andenson's forehead, Right, you can shoot yourself once, but you very likely can't shoot yourself twice. Right, right. And the, everybody tried to discredit the fireman, but you know he stuck to his guns and he said, "I, I deal with all kinds of accidents, and I've seen bullet holes throughout my work, and these were bullet holes. There were a lot of theories that you know if your if your body gets too hot." You know, a hole will form in your head and your brain will shoot out. I mean, it was pretty wild stuff. But the the fireman was, was quite insistent on what he saw. And, of course, Anderson was burned completely to a crisp and uh, because nobody could get in the car. And why, why would they have chosen James Anderson to drive the vehicle that forced Princess Diana's Mercedes into that pillar? Why him? I guess because he was willing and he had these ties with British intelligence. You know, they chose people who were expendable and they didn't fool around. I mean, I think that the the plan was probably to wipe out close witnesses. You couldn't do it immediately. I mean, Henri Paul died on impact. So you know he's not going to be a factor. And it's predictable in an accident like that. This is just physics. This is G-forces. The people on the left side of the vehicle all died very instantly. And that would be Henri Paul and Dodi Al-Fayed sitting behind him. I mean, their aortas were severed. Now, on the right side, you have less of an impact. And, you know, all of them, if they'd been wearing seatbelts, they all would have lived. And a lot of questions were raised about the seatbelts, but assuming that the seatbelts were disabled, I mean, Trevor Reese Jones went through the windshield, and in a way, it's lucky he did. It, I mean, it's a horrific facial injury, 
And I don't want to minimize what happened to him, but he didn't have any severe internal injuries. Princess Diana was spun around in the back seat, and she her aorta was not severed. She had damage. She had a tear in her pulmonary vein, which is, I mean, that will kill you, but it's a much slower bleed than the aorta. The aorta right. is almost always fatal. Right. You're going to die within four minutes. But the slow bleed, I mean, she could have stayed alive for hours, and she did. And if they had gotten her to the hospital within what they call the golden hour, the first 60 minutes of impact, you know, then you have a better than 50% chance of living. And I was think she, that's- Was she conscious? Do, do witnesses report that she was conscious and speaking in the back yes. seat? Yes. She, she was talking. Her eyes were open. Um, you know, and then various things were done to make her less responsive. All of a sudden there's, you know, there just always happens to be these, these do good doctors. You know, Frederick Maillez is a French doctor, and he's supposedly just serendipitously traveling on the opposite side of the Alma Tunnel. He sees the accident. He pulled over. He's with a companion who's American, doesn't speak French, not too sure what's going on. And for a guy who is supposedly a professional emergency services physician, he didn't have a medical kit in his car. I mean, you know, this came out at the inquest. It's the law. He's supposed to have it. He's paid to have it. All he had was a blood pressure cuff and an oxygen mask. And when they put the mask over her face, she stopped talking. You know, but but witnesses say she spoke. Now, of course, they're French. She's speaking English. They don't fully understand what she's saying. But one fireman in particular saw that she she was rubbing her stomach. I mean, this is one reason for the pregnancy rumor to be so persistent. She was rubbing her stomach and indicating that she had something to protect down there. You know, so so there were witnesses who saw her doing these things. And she went in and out of consciousness. But the ambulance came almost immediately, instead of picking her up and bringing her to a very nearby hospital, they chose a hospital that was further away that didn't, and they kept talking that she had some kind of neurological injury. But when you have a vehicle where two people have died from aorta bleed-outs, it's quite obvious that's why they died, You've got to know that the other people are in similar danger. So you don't take time to stabilize them and make sure that they have a pretty blood pressure. You lift them up and you get them to the hospital because they need a stitch in, in their, in their blood vessel. Otherwise they're bleeding to death internally. It's a slow bleed. And at one point, it seemed like hers was really slow, much slower than anticipated. Apparently, some of her blood clotted. So, you know, the bleed was effectively stopped for a period or or slowed so that she could survive. 
But How long did it take to get her into the ambulance from the car? Once the ambulance arrived, and it was very quick, but how long then did it take to get her into the ambulance? Forty minutes. Forty minutes. Yeah, they didn't even load her. I mean, the ambulance gets there 17 minutes after the first emergency call. And, but the doctor, who is this guy, Jean-Marc Martino, who wasn't even technically a physician at the time, it's really unclear about why he's driving around in the ambulance as the medic, because he hadn't officially gotten his medical degree yet. And, you know, he just dilly-dallied. He didn't move her. He kept claiming she had a heart attack. That's disputed by medical people. What happened was the way her body was positioned and given her injury, her blood pressure would drop. I mean, she certainly was in danger of cardiac arrest. But, you know, you have to get them to the hospital so that the tear in the pulmonary vein can be stitched. That's the only thing that will save her life. There is no way to stabilize her. You need to get her. Every minute you delay is a nail in her coffin. And, you know, he just kept attending to Trevor Reese Jones, who admittedly was screaming his head off, but there was another ambulance for Trevor Reese Jones. There were three ambulances that came to the site. One, you know, would have been for the dead bodies, the other for Trevor Reese Jones, and then one for Princess Diana. And after they finally load her in the ambulance, they administer all the wrong drugs to her that actually speed up the bleeding. And then, inexplicably, on the way, because by this time, you know, paparazzi were there, and there were two guys on a motorbike who were following the ambulance. The ambulance was going so slowly, 5 to 10 miles an hour, that they had to get off their scooter and walk. That's remarkable. Listen, I have to jump in again, Sarah. We're going to take another time out. We'll come back. And uh, we'll follow the ambulance carrying Princess Diana. Sarah Whalen, my guest, the author of Royal Vengeance, the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cult of human sacrifice. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Sarah Whalen. Royal Vengeance, the assassination of Princess Diana and the ancient royal cult of human sacrifice. You said that they started administering drugs to her in the ambulance en route to hospital. They were speeding up her bleeding. How do we know this? How do you know this? Uh, The doctor himself has testified about what he did. And he's, he's testified under oath several times. He was found, the last inquest, they had to track him down to Germany. He's a French doctor, Jean-Marc Martino, and he testified under oath about what he did. And it was completely the wrong thing to do. Several uh, heart surgeons have written about it. In fact, uh, I think Dr. John Oshner of Oshner Hospital in New Orleans, the very famous medical family. He's he's gone public with his view that, you know, he didn't say she was killed deliberately, but he said that they did everything wrong. And it seems so unlikely that they would be so incompetent. And I mean the hospital was so close. Even even the one they chose 
which was not a place that would have had a specialist for that kind of heart surgery easily available. She still would have had a shot at Pitié-Salpêtre. You could have lifted her in a fireman's carry, and you could have walked her to the hospital faster than the ambulance got her there. In fact, at one point, when they're just feet away from the hospital on the other side of the street, the ambulance just stopped, and the reporter saw... They assumed it was the doctor, a guy in a white coat, get out, open the back doors, jump in, close the doors, and then the, the ambulance began rocking back and forth. They were just horrified. They had and no how, clue. how long was it pulled over? Ten minutes. Again, you could have just walked her across the street. He, he kept saying initially, you know, he kept saying uh, he had to do some kind of very delicate procedure. But, you know, that's where his testimony breaks down. Then he just kept saying, you know, that the blood pressure was, was so volatile. He was afraid that hitting any bumps would instantly cause her death. And, you know, a lot of people supported this view, including Diana's own family. Initially, the Spencers supported this view. They didn't later, but initially they were gung-ho on it. They had also been led falsely to believe that she had irreversible brain damage, which just was not true at all. Her brain was fine. She didn't have neurological damage. She, she I mean, eventually you will if you don't get enough oxygen, but the accident didn't cause that. And that's confirmed by the autopsy? Yes. I mean, that's, that's just not even, that's just hokum. And, you know, the Spencers, I'll say this, they're aristocrats, but they're not particularly intelligent ones. You know, they don't have <laughs> medical degrees. They barely get out of college. You know, they're, they're not brainiac people. And they are, their whole life is pretty much supporting the crown. Even her brother, who made, you know, this really uh, very pointed uh, uh, eulogy, at her at her funeral, and he was vastly applauded for it, and he was considered very insolent to the royal family. But he didn't have a clue about how his sister died. I mean, if he if he had, he would have been a lot more outraged. He was just furious that they took her title away from her, and then he blamed the press. You know, but the press had nothing to do with this crash, although they were all arrested. And that was simply to confiscate all their film. And even Anderson, after he died, the office where he worked was raided. It was supposedly um, thieves came and stormed the office, and they were all wearing balaclavas, you know, these black ski masks. They shot a security guard in the foot. And basically, they just grabbed all of Andenson's computers, his hard drives, any anything that would have had photographs on it, and they took that. I mean, they left art treasures worth thousands of dollars, Lalit crystal, all kinds of antiques. They weren't after anything of value. They wanted to get those pictures. And several other editors reported break-ins. You know, even how, while how they were did, uh, in the Anderson- house. If Anderson's driving the white Uno, how is he able to take photographs? Yeah, it's, it's, I don't think personally he had photographs, 
but he probably knew people who did have photographs. And, you know, Andenson was a, um, again, these are not super duper intelligent people. They may be an intelligent operative because of who they know and what they know. But, you know, time passes. You think you've eluded the French police. You think you've outsmarted them. And Andenson probably did, or the French police just made, you know, they weren't gonna, they weren't gonna work that hard. If you follow Mohammed Al-Fayed, the French, uh, security forces were colluding with the British intelligence forces to create this assassination. So, not everybody is fully in on the deal. Not everyone can see the big picture. But just assume that Andenson thinks he's eluded French interest. So now he's feeling kind of cocky. And, and this was very much Andenson's personality. He was brash. He was kind of a bore. If you look at photos of him, I mean, he looks like a, he looks like a prize-fighting boxer. You know, he's a rough guy. And he may have just thought, well, I can get, I can get pictures. Right. Or the alternative is he wasn't driving. It was his car, but he was in the car. That's a possibility. Maybe he did squeeze off the pictures. Let's go back to the, uh, to the hospital. Uh, Sure. And she arrives somewhere, what, around 2 a.m.? Just after 2? Morning. She was dead. She was already dead. I mean, they made a good effort. They they opened her chest, and, of course, the chest was filled with blood. So all her blood in her system had basically gone into her chest. It was full. So they had to transfuse her. They had to give her new blood. There was Supposedly, they didn't know what her blood type is, which seems bizarre. She's one of the most famous people in the world. Um, seems like that would be information you might get very quickly while you're spending an hour trying to, you know, figure out what to do with her in the ambulance. You might have found out her blood type, but they didn't. So supposedly they used O, universal donor. And, uh, you know, they basically put blood into her and tried to get her blood pressure going again. But the blood wouldn't circulate. And then they took her heart out and massaged it in their hands. And they tried for hours. I mean, those doctors were completely legitimate. John Mark Martino, I don't think so. I think something was wrong with him. I mean, it seems the height of incompetence to delay a person over an hour when you know they have to be bleeding internally is a really high chance, better than 80% chance, that they have some kind of devastating internal injury. But he is, that, is that the protocol in France, though? I've heard someone argue that that's the way they do it. You have to you stabilize the person before you transport. Yeah, that's the argument. And okay, you know, there are two different philosophies. The United States is scoop and run. And then in France, American doctors call it stay and play. So okay, you want to play with someone in an ambulance? All right. But you, you can't deny the physics, especially if you are an accident medic. This is your specialization. Two people on the left side of the vehicle are instantly dead. The other one is barely conscious. You have to assume that everyone in the car had a similar impact with G-forces 
and none of them have belts on. So something has to be wrong with her internally, and they knew it because her blood pressure kept going up and down. And it doesn't matter what kind of drug you give her to momentarily pop the blood pressure up, but popping the blood pressure up means it's going to be really hard to operate on her if you do get her to the hospital in time. You you add in a complication. So either Jean-Marc Martino was incompetent, which is entirely possible, I'm not denying it, or he's really devoted to the French stay-and-play method where you try to stabilize someone. But like I said, this goes against what you observe about the accident with your own eyes. I mean, you're there. You see two people are dead. <laughs> and, and you know the nature of the accident is an impact accident. You have to rush this person to the hospital. You can do a lot of things in a French ambulance. I'll grant you that. But the one thing you can't do is open-heart surgery in a French ambulance or any ambulance. Right, you have right. to be in a surgery with surgeons who are going to do this, and that involves getting her to the hospital very quickly. Two in the morning is inc- that's crazy. She's already dead. Stopping the ambulance has never, never been explained. And he, you know, this was the thing about the inquest. If he had been in an American court, he wouldn't, I don't think he would have walked out alive, really. I mean, you know, the American way of questioning a witness is very aggressive. You are very fact-driven, and you pound your point home. And if you look at the inquest testimony, it's like these English people, they're, they're sitting around drinking tea and eating crumpets and being very <laughs> overly polite with each other. And I'm just thinking, God, this is why nothing got done. This is, and, and then not to call Prince Philip. You know, they have numerous witnesses, and you may not like them, like uh, Simone Simmons, who is a psychic. But she was a friend of Diana's. She says she saw Prince Philip's letters. She testified about it. Her testimony was never refuted. And she said that Prince Philip, that Diana feared Prince Philip. There were numerous witnesses. Um, a, an Argentine dress designer. He's, he's more than that. He's kind of a bon vivant kind of character. And he traveled a lot with Princess Diana. And he took a trip with her, an official trip to Argentina, right after the divorce was announced. And he said they were in the airport, and there were portraits of the Queen and Prince Philip in the lounge where they were waiting in the airport. And, and you know, that's very typical to have portraits of the Queen and Prince Philip, or yes. at least the Queen. But Roberto Dvorak pointed, he said that Diana pointed to the portrait of Philip and said, he wants me dead. And, you know, she went into some detail about why. And she claimed that he had written her letters. No one ever denied that Philip wrote her letters. And Diana claimed to people that the letters were abusive. She supposedly told Muhammad al-Fayed about the letters as well. But Prince Philip was never called to testify. And the coroner wrote 
like a four-page letter, you know, very torturous, explaining that, you know, he he had the power to call Prince Philip, but he didn't think it would do any good. He didn't think it would shed any light on anything. And, of course, to call the queen is quite out of the question because it's the queen's court. I mean, nobody is going to bring the British monarch into the court. I've got to take another time out. Uh, we'll uh, sure. come back and pick up on this. Sarah Whalen, the author of Royal Vengeance, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarek. Sarah Whalen stays with us. We're discussing the assassination of Princess Diana, the 21st anniversary of her death. Back to the hospital. They seem to be in an awful rush to embalm the body. What was that all about? Well, this was interesting because, in theory, they had no right to embalm her. I mean, she was a private citizen. And the only person, in theory, who could order an embalming would have been her brother. But... Apparently, the palace got involved, and they actually sent royal embalmers over. And in the meantime, uh, the French government on its own decided to bring in two French embalmers as well. I mean, there was a huge rush to have her body embalmed. The explanation was that, of course, it was August when she died. It was very, very hot and the hospital, the part of the hospital where she was, did not have air conditioning. So the room was boiling. But it did have a morgue for dead bodies. And why they didn't bring her body to the morgue where it would have been cooled and it would have been perfectly preserved and no rush needed to do anything is a question. But supposedly, Prince Charles announced that he was flying in to see his dead ex-wife and uh, to pick up the body and bring her back to England on a royal plane. And he made sure to pick up her two sisters, Jane Fellows and Sarah McCorkdale. So he had the two sisters with him. And if you look at the photos, you know, it's very telling to me. I, I try to do a little Kremlinology and look at the faces and see what they might be communicating. I mean, Sarah Fellows was, Jane Fellows was absolutely crushed. You could see how emotional she was. But Sarah McCorkdale, who had been initially Prince Charles's girlfriend before Diana, she was much more skeptical. She was very wary in her facial expressions and calculating, as though she was putting a picture together. And, uh, of course, Jane Fellows is married to Robert Fellows, who is the secretary to the Queen. And Mohammed al-Fayed got everybody very excited because he claimed that Fellows was in Paris on the night of the accident and that he had orchestrated the assassination. Ah. And Fellows did testify at the inquest. He claimed, you know, that he was at his country house in Norfolk and he had some friends with him and they had gone to... uh, a, ch- a little fair at their local church in the evening. But, you know, again, this is the difference between British and American people. It, fellows had been knighted. Fellows was close to the queen. It 
seemed incomprehensible to a lot of people. The fellows would do anything wrong. But fellows hated Diana, I mean, by this time. And Jane was not allowed to even speak to her sister. And, you know, fellows was first servant of the queen. And uh, I timed it out. It would have been, I don't know if he was there or not, Alfie had claimed to have witnesses who had seen fellows at the British Embassy. And I might add that the British Embassy is just blocks away from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. It's mm. very close. And uh, so it's entirely possible that fellows could have been there. He could have gone to the entertainment at his village church and then just jumped in a helicopter popped across the channel. He could have been there very quick. And it certainly would have been there long before midnight. Well, does he and have, does he have the, the experience, the resume uh, of someone to, to, to conduct such an operation? No. He's not an intelligence operative at all. He's a courtier. But the thing with people close to the throne is they do a lot of orchestrating, always. You know, this is this is what they do, and often they're generational. You know, I don't. Th- Fellows was the son of a land manager of the Queen at Sandringham. Usually, there's some close tie that brings a courtier into the royal orbit, and ordinarily they stay there for life. You notice with the new royals, there's there's a lot of to and froing. There's there's a lot of courtiers have been fired recently. It's unusual. Usually something really big has to happen. There's right. clearly a changing of the old guard. And, of course, the queen is in her 90s, you know, and she's not in the greatest of health. So, you know, there's a lot of jostling. Prince William and Prince Harry have both married commoners. I mean, William has the advantage of marrying a British commoner, an English commoner. But... uh of course, Prince Harry kind of went off the reservation, married Meghan Markle. It's very sensational. She's divorced. She's mixed race. I think they allowed it, you know, for lots of reasons. But one reason is he's he's pretty far down the food chain at the moment. Right. Listen, we'll take another time out. We'll come sure. back and finish up. We'll uh, continue to talk about the rush to embalm. What were they trying to conceal? Yeah. And uh, all of that awaits. Sarah Whale, an author of... Royal Vengeance, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sapp. We are back with Sarah Whalen. One final segment remains, and I wanted to go back to the embalming. I guess officials claim that there was a rush to embalm because they had to get the body ready for viewing for Prince Charles, and also, I believe, French President Chirac and his wife wanted to pay their respects. But there was another reason, I'm guessing, that they wanted to hide something. Is it possible that she was pregnant and that that's the reason they did this partial embalming? Yes, it certainly is possible. And, you know, what people don't realize is Lady Colin Campbell, she's a big royalty writer. Several, I guess, over a decade ago, she wrote a book about how Princess Diana had had an abortion. She became pregnant by Oliver Hoare, one of her lovers. 
and he was married. He wasn't going to leave his wife, and she was still married to Prince Charles. She hadn't gotten divorced yet. And so she went to the office of her financial advisor in London, and they arranged to do an abortion in his office. It's never been disputed, and, of course, it's a really difficult thing to dispute, especially now that she's dead. But she made no secret about wanting more children. And, you know, Dodi Al-Fayed, witnesses say he was calling people and saying that he was going to marry the princess and they were going to live in his house in Malibu. And, you know, arrangements were being made very quickly for this marriage to take place. So it's entirely possible that she was pregnant. You can't rule it out. I, be- I believe you said earlier, though, you, you personally don't believe she was. You know, I don't, I don't think it's important to why she was murdered. I think it's certainly important to why they may have wanted to do uh, an embalming. Whether she was or wasn't, they wouldn't really know 100% certain, but they would want to wipe out any evidence one way or another. And embalming certainly does that that would completely eradicate any evidence of pregnancy. So, you know, if they, if they wanted to avoid that scandal, that's what they did. I don't think that they killed her thinking that she was pregnant. I don't think that was a strong enough motive. Um, I think the main thing was that she, as long as she was alive, she was an impediment to Charles marrying. And, you know, her campaign to deprive him of the crown, she wouldn't have let that go. She'd already, in theory, she she had uh, she'd signed an, an agreement with the royal family, and they gave her, I think, 17 million pounds in return. And they allowed her to live at Kensington Palace, keep her apartment, and uh, but she was about to cut loose from that. And, Why is she uh, going to marry a Dodie? Oh, I, I don't have a doubt that she would have. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you know, she didn't love Dodie, blah, blah, blah. I think Dodie, through his father, offered her just an inordinate amount of wealth, wealth that would equal what she had access to with the British royal family. Mohammed al-Fayed had private planes. She was already using his planes. When she went to Bosnia, she went on one of his planes. You know, people don't even realize that. He was already funding her activities with the landmines. And, you know, this is a big motive to kill her because what I was told by people very high up was that she was going to get a Nobel Peace Prize for her landmines work. That was a given. And had that happened, that would have really made Charles look like a fool and the whole royal family looking like a fool. And I think they knew that was going to happen, and they couldn't allow it to. I think that was a much stronger immediate motive to kill her than the possibility that she might be pregnant with some other guy. I mean, even Harry's paternity is is much in doubt. Diana fooled around. I don't think that came as a huge shock to anyone. But the idea of her getting a Nobel Peace Prize and Charles looking like an idiot, that, that would have been a very bitter pill to swallow. 
and certainly would have given them grounds. However, they probably wanted just to make sure to wipe out any evidence that she might be pregnant. I, I don't really entirely subscribe to Mohammed Al-Fayed's view that, you know, the idea that a Muslim stepfather and, you know, that there would be a... It would have been a complication for the royal family they wouldn't have been happy about. But I think they would have been much more unhappy to have her win the Nobel Peace Prize. She would have been unstoppable. Right. But she may well have been pregnant, and they made sure they did really like a triple embalming when you get right down to it, because they embalmed her again. They had a second autopsy when she arrived back in England, and then embalmed again. And, you know, the guy who did the autopsy said, I looked into her uterus and I didn't see anything, but it would have been washed out in the first embalming in Paris. So you wouldn't have seen any evidence of her pregnancy. Now, recently, they claim they took uh, a blood sample. Apparently, she bled a little bit in the car. This is the claim. I just saw a trickle of blood, you know, on her in her forehead area. But they claim they took blood off the seat and they tested it for pregnancy hormones, and it came back negative. But there's no way to really guarantee these results so many years after the accident. I think they had numerous reasons to kill her. But I think the threat she posed to the monarchy, as long as she lived, that was big. And, you know, certainly marrying Dodi Al-Fayed brought everything to a crescendo because all of a sudden she would have had access to money, real money. Do you think the initial intention may have been to scare her? No, that's that's been talked about. But they'd already, you know, if you if you subscribe to the view that that one of the accidents, there was an accident where she claims the brakes didn't work and she jumped out of her car, she abandoned the car in the middle of the street and she took a taxi back to Kensington Palace. And someone had to go retrieve the car, and she claimed that the brakes had been tampered with then. That might have been to scare her. There was a similar accident with Camilla. Camilla ran a woman off the road and left the accident. Uh, the, the lady who was in the ditch was rescued, and she complained to high heaven you know, that Camilla hadn't even come to check on her. But the response is that, Camilla may have believed her life was in danger, similar to Diana. Maybe her brakes failed, and she had been told, if anything like that ever happens, you are to run away, get to a safe location, and, you know, try to use your phone. And apparently she was out in the country and couldn't get a signal, so she had to go quite a distance. But, you know, her friends reported that Camilla was exceptionally terrified, and thought that maybe someone was trying to kill her. And if you Isn't there go a, back, a, an easier way to do this? Uh, you know, poison their food. Uh, you you know, you pay off the coroner so that they, the, you know, the findings are negative. The toxicology reports are negative. It seems like a, it's it's so fraught with complications and, and the possibility that something could go wrong. Well, certainly, people people you know, hundreds of years ago were poisoned. Um, you know, some people say Prince Albert was poisoned. Other people say he died of diphtheria. 
Um, but I think nowadays, you know, poisoning would show up. Toxicology tests are pretty sophisticated. But uh, an automobile accident in Paris, you know, at the height of the tourist season, eh, it's it's probably far more doable. You know, she was, but the the difference being that she was in excellent shape. She might not have lived. She might not have survived that long had she not been in such extraordinary physical shape. But she worked out. She was very careful with her diet. I mean, just look at her. Plus, she was a big, strapping woman. This is not some tiny, petite person. I mean, she was almost six feet tall. She was, right. She was do you, big. Do you think that, that Harry and William suspect something? Oh, Sure. But they can't say anything. If they if they say or do anything, they'll be out that orbit forever, and their own lives at risk. That that much is clear. You know, the royal family is much bigger than one individual. It may be the queen, but it's really a system. It's a big system, and the system is known for eating its young. If the system wants, if the system feels that survival is at risk. It will eat the young. And, you know, frankly, Prince William and Prince Harry, again, royals, they're not the brightest people on the block. They're not astrophysicists. They're not, they're not even really capable of earning their own living. I mean, if they had to get a job tomorrow, what would they be? You know, even their helicopter pilot jobs seem kind of curious. Um, you know, they wouldn't really be able to support themselves. And How you can get, you function as a human being knowing that your father or your grandfather is responsible for the death of your mother? That would drive a normal person to drink. You have to repress a lot. And, of course, you know, they got even in a way. They chose spouses who were problematic. I wouldn't go as far to say unsuitable, but, you know, here's the other thing, too, because it's not just up to them. Aristocrats saw what happened to Diana. I mean, initially, when the marriage happened, aristocrats were thrilled that he had chosen, you know, an English girl, and a, a real aristocrat, daughter of an earl, and that made everybody in the land happy. But then when they saw how she was treated, and, of course, she wrote this very lurid book, you know, her true story about, you know, suicide attempts and people were very cruel to her and Charles had a mistress and, you know, the average aristocrat has a daughter and they don't need the royal family anymore. They have their landed communities. It's not like they're dependent on the king like they were 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago. I mean, Aristocrats don't want to surrender their daughters anymore to someone who's going to mistreat them. And I think that was communicated. You know, that Diana may have had her faults, but she was very mistreated, and she was sensitive, and she was young. And so all of a sudden, aristocrats closed their doors to William and Harry. They didn't, uh, they weren't allowed. So, you know, was kind of discouraged. And fascinating, so they, fascinating. Yeah. So they, That's they, why they, they were forced to choose commoners. Yeah, I think so. They, they took, of course, the commoner pool is huge. You know, and Prince Harry was all over the place. He was, 
he was <laughs> playing pool naked in Vegas, jumping in the swimming pool. You know, at some point you could just say, well, that's hijinks. But, you know, they, there are photos of them running around London, really drunk, messed up on drugs, quite obvious. Well, I, mean, they, I, I, I can't lot. blame them. Growing up in no. that family, knowing what they know, perhaps. Sarah, uh, we are out of time, but uh, a fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Royal Vengeance, available at Amazon and good bookstores everywhere. All right, that's it for me. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert, and Ryan, of course, back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. <laughs>